They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The text that uh, we're going to look at this morning is, is a familiar one, basically. It's taken from Mark chapter 14. 32 through 42, those verses. And it has to do with the prayer that uh, Jesus is offering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the circumstances were these. That Jesus had had, had partaken of the uh, Passover meal with his disciples, his apostles. And during that Passover meal, one of his apostles, Judas Iscariot, had left the table and gone out and gone to the chief priest and the, uh, the uh, ruling class of Israel and, and had betrayed Jesus and, and uh, agreed with them on a price of 30 pieces of silver that he would lead the group who had come to take him into captivity. He would lead the armed group to Jesus so that they could... Bring him back. Now, before that took place, Jesus took his apostles to a place called Gethsemane. It was sort of a garden area. And he took three with them, Peter, James, and John in particular. He isolated these three men. And he took them with him while he was going to pray. And it was late at night. And uh, typically... People get tired late at night. They, they had had quite a few things going on. There was a lot of turmoil surrounding this last week that Jesus was spending in that area, the area, area that surrounded uh, Jerusalem. So these men were understandably tired, and they were, they were sleepy, and they dozed. These three men, Peter, James and John dozed. And Jesus approached Peter and he woke him up. He said, uh, can't you watch with me for just one hour? Stay awake. Because Jesus said that his heart, his soul was sorrowful. And uh, what he said at that time was, when he, when he woke them, he, he said, uh, be careful he warned them. He warned them a couple of times. This text doesn't repeat the second time he warned them, but but it does mention the first time. He said, "Be careful! Don't fall into temptation. Do not enter into temptation." Then he mentioned the fact at verse thirty-eight. As a matter of fact, he said, "Don't enter into temptation," because he said the spirit is truly ready, but the flesh is weak. So. They went to sleep. And he went on, and Luke tells us in, his, in Luke's account, in chapter 22, Luke tells us that uh, he wanted them to just watch with him, and when they wouldn't, that an angel came to Jesus and stood by him and gave him some support. 
And then when Jesus finished praying, he woke the men again, Peter, James, and John. He woke them again, and he said it again. Now, Mark, doesn't, Mark does not include this, but Matthew does. Matthew and Luke both tell us that he told them twice during this time, be careful, watch, and do not enter into temptation. Two times. The first time when he woke Peter, the second time when he got them all up. said, okay, the, the hour's come. And he said, be careful, don't enter into temptation. Watch. We look at that term temptation and, and we, we define it this way. We say, well, it's, a, it's an enticement. It's, it's something that, that try, tries to draw us in. It's a desire that we have. Something that wants to get us involved and embroiled in something that we shouldn't be involved in. It's, it's a temptation. So, well, we can use the term pretty, pretty easily in our common terminology. Someone that is addicted to chocolate can be tempted by chocolate. That's how we use the term, really. And so it, it has, it's, it's kind of taken on that connotation that we, we say the word temptation means the enticement or the desire. That may not be exactly what that word means. The word probably means, and its root word means, to prove or to test. So you can say, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm going to go on a diet. Chocolate tempts me, but I'm going to put some chocolate on my counter and I'm going to test myself and see if I'm strong enough not to eat the chocolate and not to break my diet. Okay. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. But the idea is that the temptation or the word temptation actually means to prove or to test to see if something will hold up under stress. That's what the word means. So, we can use it though in, ter in terms of, of being enticed by something and, and being tested. So, now the question I'm going to ask you is this. Is Jesus telling these men, be careful and don't enter into a situation where you're tempted to do something wrong? If you're an alcoholic... Don't go sit at a bar where they're serving alcohol and let yourself be tempted, you see. So, is he saying that? And that's, the, that's what we want to address. Well, we, we want to recognize that that may be part of what the word temptation means. Now, in James chapter 1 at verse 12, though, and, and look at this very carefully. It says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation when he is tried... He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. But he had earlier said at verse 2, he said, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Count it all joy if you, if you fall into a, into a temptation, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So now, here he's saying, James is saying, be happy when you're tempted. Knowing that if you stand up, if you take the test, if you pass the test, it'll strengthen your faith. Later in the book of James, in this same context, verse 13, he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, or proven, or tried, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Every man is tempted, and here's the way it works. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So, actually, the lust is the enticement. The word tempt means the proving. Tempting does not mean enticing. Tempting means proving. To see if you can withstand the pressure. The pressure comes from the lust. And the lust comes from our desire to do something that we shouldn't be doing. 
Okay. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, at verse 12 and 13, Paul offers this advice. He said, there is no temptation, no time when you're going to be proved, there's no temptation taken you, but such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So he's saying God is not going to tempt you. And of course, we already read that earlier in, in the James. He said, but God will with the temptation. If you have a temptation, when you're tested, God will give you an escape, a way that you can bear it. So Paul is saying, and James is saying, that the believer is going to be tested in various different ways. And he is going to be tested for loyalty and whether or not he can stand up under the pressure of sin and of lust. Well, let's just admit that that's going to happen. And that does happen. We fall into a situation where, of course, all that's in the world is lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. Things entice us. And the world entices us and says, come do this. And we know that the, the, the Lord says, don't do that. Be strong. And so if we're tempted in that way, tested in that way, we can avoid or we can deny the enticement. We're being proven. Okay. However, when we're talking about this text and the time that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, I do not believe that's what he was talking about. When he said, Watch, therefore, that you enter not into temptation. What I believe he was telling the apostles was, do not test God. Do not get in a situation where you're putting a test to God. Where you're trying to test Him and see if He's going to act in a certain way. He told them this twice. Two times. And I believe he told them that two times because he was emphasizing the seriousness of that statement, of that concept. Now we know that, in, that uh, the Bible says that we should not tempt God. Remember when the devil came to Jesus? He came to Jesus and he said, if you are the Son of God, he said, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning you, that in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you will dash your foot against a stone. Matthew 4, verse 6. You know what Jesus said? He said, it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus did not enter into temptation. He did not tempt God. How could he have tempted God? Well, the devil said, here's the way you do it. God said he would take care of you. Now you go up on the temple and throw yourself off and see if God's going to do it. Now that's what I believe that Jesus was warning his apostles about. Do not fall into that situation where you're going to tempt God. God told you he's going to do certain things. Now do not come before him and say, Okay, Lord, you said you're going to do it. Now let's see you do it. Now that's what I think he's telling him. Don't enter into temptation. And that's the, that's the advice that we're given throughout the New Testament. Exercise your faith. Believe in God. But do not try to test God. Don't put God to your personal test. Don't do like Israel did. In Numbers chapter 14, at verse 22, Moses is talking to God, and God is talking to Moses, and he says, because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, and God is looking at Moses and looking out all of Israel, at Israel because he had just delivered them from Egyptian bondage, he said, he said my, they've all seen my glory and they've all seen my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me these ten times. They have tempted me ten times. 
Now Jesus is saying, don't do that. Basically. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 through 13 says this. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now notice the expression, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. He's talking about this same time that we were talking about in Numbers chapter 14. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation. Why was he grieved with them? Because they were tempting him and trying to prove him. He said, I was grieved with that generation. I said, they do always err in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the evil God, from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So what Jesus is saying in the Garden of Gethsemane is, don't tempt God. That's what he's saying. And he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I I want to take this time this morning to go back and look at how we can tempt God in our current situation. The problem we're in right now, in this country, in this nation, under this government, as citizens of the United States of America, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers in God, as children of God, and as followers of Jesus Christ. How can we fall into the same situation that Israel was in, in tempting God? Now, let me go back and talk to you because you're Bible believers, and I'm sure you've heard the Bible stories from the time you were little. And in my family, we told the Bible stories when our children were little, and we hope they're telling their children the same Bible stories, and one of the Bible stories that's so important and influential and exciting to us was the departure of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Now it all came back to this. God told Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis and chapter 15 of Genesis, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he said, I'm going to bless you And I'm going to bless all nations through you. But further than that, he said, I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you the land you're in. And Abraham was in the land of Canaan. The land we know of as the land that flowed with milk and honey. So he said, now I'm going to to give this to you as your own property. You can have this land and I will bless you in it. Now, he told Abraham that. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham never, never got a, a foothold in the land of Canaan. Never so much as owned a piece of property to put his foot on. He didn't own it. Okay. So what we're going to think about here is this. How long does it going to take you, God, to do this to take care of your problem or your, pro- your promise? I'm sorry, I'm getting my words a little mixed up here. How long will it be before I get my promise fulfilled? How long is it going to be? How long will it be before I inherit the land? How long will it be before my children inherit the land? How long will it be before all of this takes place? Well, we know that it didn't happen for another 500 years. That's a half of a millennium. Why didn't Abraham say, well, when are you going to get it done, God? You said you're going to do it. Let's have it. Let's have some land. It didn't happen for another 500 years. Isn't that something? So Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac. Well, maybe Isaac's going to get it. 
No. Isaac didn't get it. They wandered around in it, but they didn't, they didn't inherit the land. Then Isaac had a couple of sons. One was the name of Jacob. And Jacob had 12 boys. They didn't get it. Of these 12 boys, he had a, a favorite among them, of his favorite wife, Rachel. And his name was Joseph. You remember the story, the Bible story? Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. And he was sort of a favorite of Jacob. And that made him unpopular with his brothers. They sold the boy into Egyptian bondage. They sold him to a passing caravan and, and they took him down into Egypt and he, he ended up in Potiphar's house, chief captain of the, uh, the Egyptians. And eventually, the whole family ended up down there. There were 75 people in the land of Canaan. Now think. 75 people. Okay, let's get it done now. Now, Lord, you said we can get the land. Let's have it. No. They were taken down into Egypt, 75 strong. And they stayed there for 400 years. Okay, Lord, you promised the land. When are we going to get the land? When are we going to get it? You, you see what I'm driving at? We're praying to God all the time. Lord, will you give me, and you, you fill in your blank. Lord, will you give me a good job? And then we sit back and say, and I want it soon, please. <laughs> I want it. Matter of fact, I'd like to have a telephone call today. I'd like to get this job. You know, we live in a society where everything happens immediately. If we want something, we want it now. And we generally get it right now. So we're, pray to, we're praying to God for different things. I'm going to mention this right now, and then I'll mention it again later. We're asking God to change our government. In this society right now, we're asking God to make changes in our government. And we want the changes right now. Now look what was happening with the sons and daughters of Abraham. 500 years, 500 years before the promise started to be fulfilled. It was almost 600 years before they got it. But when we talk about what we want, we want God to make some changes. He promised, therefore we want the changes, and we want them, and we want them right now. Well, he... Uh, at this certain time, they, they went down to Egypt. The 75 souls went down in Egypt. And they stayed there for 400 years. Now, God sent a man by the name of Moses to, to bring them out. We all know the story. You can read. It's, there's a compendium of it in Acts chapter 7. Stephen has a long sermon concerning this, this situation. He, he hits the high points like I'm hitting. But they, they went down. They were in Egypt. And the people in Egypt, it looked like things were going well because the Pharaoh was taking care of this 75 souls that grew over 400 years and became a population of over 600,000 men, plus women and children. And they were in the most favorable part of, this, of, the, of Egypt, which is the land of Goshen. They were doing well. But during that time, the government changed. And they got a Pharaoh that didn't care anything about them. And the Pharaoh then put them under some heavy burdens. The Pharaoh had these people enslaved. The Egyptians were enslaving the Israelites. They were slaves, basically. They were carrying the burden of the economy of Egypt on their shoulders. They were making bricks. They were making 
stones so that they could build the, the cities. That's what they were doing. And they were working under some pretty severe circumstances. Now, you would think if God was going to take care of these people, he'd make sure that the Pharaoh was a good Pharaoh. Just like we think, if we have a president, we want a good one. Right? I'm, I'm not off the mark here. God was in control, but here the Pharaoh changed. And the Pharaoh that's taking care of Israel now is not taking very good care of them because he's enslaved them. So, he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he said, go down and get my people and bring them. But what happened first was that Moses, he'd been raised, he was an Israelite, he'd been raised as an Egyptian. When he was 40 years old, he looked out and saw that his people were not being treated very well. So, he smote an Egyptian who had been smiting or hitting, abusing one of his brethren, an Israelite. And he killed him. Thinking, this is what I ought to do. This is how they will accept me because I'm one of them. So then he found a couple of Israelites in the squabble and tried to separate them. They said, hey, you're the guy that killed the Egyptian. And they were going to tell on him. Moses had to flee for his life. Now that doesn't seem like God is in control of this thing, does it? It seems like things are out of control. How am I going to get these people out of Egypt and get them over to the land of Canaan? Here was Moses. Moses was, was presenting somewhat of a solution to them, for them. But now they've rejected him. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness around the area of Sinai and then came back and God sent him back and said, now I want you to go down and I want you to get my people and bring them out of Egypt. Now, it's not just a Bible story. It has some complications to it. And it has some logistical problems in, involved in it. We look at it and it, it's kind of a fun story. And we can make little figurines and so forth and we show how things happen and we draw little maps and, and teach them to our children in the, in the Bible schools and so forth. But man, they had some problems. How are you going to get 600,000 men plus the women and children out of Egypt and get them over to Canaan? It's probably 300 miles away or further. How are you going to get them over there? And you're going to have to take them across a sea. Now, it'd be like saying, let's take the city of Los Angeles and let's evacuate it and take it across the Colorado River over into Arizona. How are you going to do that? How's that going to happen? Well, okay, what we'll do, first of all, logistically, we're going to have to have, have some way to get these folks across the Red Sea. So maybe while we're getting things together, we'll go build some boats and set them on the shore and wait until we get the people out there. Then we'll row them all across. Like at Dunkirk, you remember? When the British forces were trapped at Dunkirk in Normandy and they were surrounded by the German pincher movement and they had to get out of Dunkirk and across the channel into back home. How did they get them across? I'm telling you, that was quite a feat. But they, they, they enlisted every sailing vessel they could give, every ship they could get. They enlisted all the different logistical armament they could muster and got them across. How were you going to get these, Egypt, these Israelites across the Red Sea? You see what, what I'm saying? What a logistical nightmare that was going to be. Okay, how are you even going to get them to move? How are you going to get them activated? How are you going to get them riled up? God said, okay, I'm going to send you down there, Moses. Moses tried it once. And they said, get out of town, Moses. We're not going to listen to you. Now he sends him back and Moses takes all the elders in Israel and gets them together and says, we're going to get out of town. We're going to leave. And you know what they do? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe we're not going to do this. How are you going to mobilize that many people 
and get them out of the country. Well, you say, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, start, a, let's start a movement among the people. Let's, let's get everybody all, all jacked up about a revolution and we'll overthrow the Egyptian government. Well, what, why, don't we, why don't we get some cadres around around and we'll, we'll organize the people sort of sub rosa so nobody can know what's going on. You know what the Egyptians did? They said, hey, you've got, you guys have got too much spare time. You've got too much time on your hands. We've been supplying the straw for your bricks. Now we're going to make you supply your own straw so you don't have a lot of spare time to go fooling around and talk about a revolution. We're going to, we're going to take care of that. Well, that was going on with them, and Moses is saying, "Let's let's get let's get everybody out here." So I'm saying, "Okay, Lord, here's how I would do it. Here's how I would do it. How would I do it?" Well, I just told you. Well, maybe we'll we'll start a, a revolution. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get a cadre of soldiers. Maybe we'll start arming the Israel Israelites so that they can fight the Egyptians. Maybe we'll start sneaking people out at night, getting them out so that nobody knows they're going. Maybe we'll do it that way. All sorts of ways. How are we going to move these people out without the Egyptians coming down on us like a ton of bricks? How are we going to get, get them out? Okay. Lord, I'll tell you how I think I'd do it. How did he do it? Well, he did it in a way that I would never have thought about. He just aggravated old Pharaoh. He just made a nuisance of himself. He just made him, he said, okay, I'm going to turn your water into blood. And you know what that did? That aggravated Pharaoh. He didn't like that. Well, he said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to send you some flies. What he was doing is he's taking all the different plagues that we call them, ten different plagues, that had something to do with their deities. But anyway, he was simply aggravating Pharaoh. Now, that's not the way I think. If I'm going to get this people out of Egypt and take them to Canaan, that's not the way I would do it. But that's the way God was doing it. Again, we're thinking about how will we change things in our society Here's how we think we should do it. How should we do it? The question is, how does God do it? Well, here, here God was, he, he plagued them. He said, okay, I'm going to send you some flies. And Pharaoh said, okay, I've had enough flies. You can leave. When the flies were gone, Pharaoh's resolve melted. He said, no, you can't go. All Moses wanted to do, he told him, was to take his people out three days in the wilderness so they could offer sacrifices. And Pharaoh knew, just as sure as he was standing there, Pharaoh knew if he, got, if he let them out, if he put the gate down and let the cows out, they would not come home. So he knew if they ever got loose, they were loose. And it was going to take a lot to herd them up and bring them back. So, he changed his mind. Okay, then how about some lice? Lice over all the Egyptians. Lice in their hair. Have you ever had head lice? Know anybody had head lice? Terrible. Lice on the, on the cattle, lice on the people. And so Pharaoh said, okay, I give up. You can, you can go. I'll let your people go. Lice were gone. Pharaoh's resolve melted again. He said, no, you're gonna, I'm not. Frogs, let's try frogs. And the place was full of frogs, and then when the frogs died, it, it was quite a stench that rose up all around the land, and Pharaoh said, okay, I've had enough, go. Once the frogs disappeared, Pharaoh said, no, I've changed my mind. It went on that way, and I'm thinking to myself, now would I, do, would I have done that? Is that the way I would have done that? Is that the way you would have done that? Is that the way you would have confronted Pharaoh and said, here... God said, let my people go. How would, how would you have done it? Maybe I would have used some lightning and some thunder 
and some earthquakes and some tsunamis and I'll use all the power that I can muster and I'll, I'll just thunder down upon them. You know what God did? He said, I'll just aggravate them. And I'll get them out. I'll aggravate them. That's not the way I would have done it. Not, not for a minute. I wouldn't have done it that way. Anyway, when the firstborn was killed, then he, he let them go. So, that's not, that's not the way I would have done what God did. Now, sometimes our temptation that faces us is that I believe that I can ask God to correct my social situation or my civic situation, and I have it mapped out in my mind how it ought to go. I know how I would do it. That I know exactly how I would do it. And I know how long it would take for me to do it. Matter of fact, I'd want it done right away. Think about this. We've been asking God to take care of this plague called COVID-19. And we want it done now. Get it done now, Lord. We don't want to wait. We've had it long enough. Now, we're tempting God by that, by saying, here's our timeline. Please get it done by now. We, we're tired of this. You, you see what I'm saying? God has his own timeline. It took 500 years for Abraham to get his land to his, to his descendants. Almost 600 years. And yet, God did it on his own schedule. On his own schedule. Not on mine. Not on theirs. On his schedule. And how did he do it? How did he do it? Well, he did it in a way that I would have never done it. And you wouldn't have either. You would have never thought to do it that way. No military genius in the annals of American history or national history or universal history would have ever thought about getting those people out of Egypt that way. Never. But God did. Because it was His business as to how He was going to do it. It was His business, not mine, not yours. It was God's business. Okay. The timeline and the method. So, when Jesus said, beware that you enter not into temptation, He is telling me, make sure that you do not put me, put God to a test. Like Israel put God to a test. Sometimes the temptation comes in the form of our not knowing how God is going to do it. And if we can't see it playing out the way we think it ought to be, then we lose faith in God. Here's how we think it should be done. We think it should be done in a way that we believe is logical. For instance, God has promised to take care of me and my family if I believe in Him. He will take care of me. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now what I want to know, Lord, is how are you going to do it? And when are you going to get it done? Those two issues. When is it going to happen? And how are you going to do it? And if I'm not careful, I'm going to be tempting God. I'm going to lose confidence that He can do it, that He can take care of me. God has promised to stay with me through thick and thin. Whatever happens to me, God will be there. Romans 8, 31, 32 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God said, I will always be with you. I will always be there with you. Now, if I begin to question that, I am entering into temptation because I'm questioning not only the when are you going to do it, Lord, but I'm questioning the how are you going to do it, Lord. 
Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6 says, Let your conversation, your manner of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do unto me. Let's get this down to the issue that I wanted to address when we first started this, and that is, that I believe that we live as American citizens, I'm not talking about people in foreign soil right now, that we live as American citizens on unique soil in a unique time. We are the heirs of of a great demonstration called democracy. Democracy means that we have a say in how we are governed. We the people is the way their preamble of our Constitution reads. And I've said this before, and let me just just briefly say it again. That we have agreed, as citizens in this country, we have agreed that we will allow the majority to rule. That's a democracy. So whatever the... It's a democratic republic also, which means that we can elect representatives that we can send to different areas, for instance, the the hamlet, the town, the city, the state, the federal government. We can send representatives to represent what we want done in this country. And we have all agreed to that. If you are a citizen of the United States of America, that means that you have said to your neighbor... And to everybody else in this country, I agree that the majority will rule. I agree. If you do not agree with that, you can renounce your citizenship. And in doing so, you renounce all of the rights that you have under the Bill of Rights and under the Constitution. You can still live here, but you have no protection by the Constitution of the United States because you said, I renounce that. You still have to pay taxes, by the way. So don't, don't get to thinking that just because I renounce my citizenship that I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not answerable to the IRS. You still are. But we have all gotten into that situation where we, we have agreed that we have a responsibility to each other to provide for one another life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice. We've all agreed to that, and we can do that by representation. But basically what we're saying is, the majority will rule. majority will rule. Now, we've had an election recently, and every four years we have one of these things, and every two years we have another one on the state level. And at that time, we, as a majority decide who's going to be the president and also who's going to be in our state representatives and our national representatives and Congress and the Senate. So we make all these decisions. And in, in doing that, they also are ruled by what we call a majority. So now, how can I affect that majority? If I do not agree with what the majority wants, what do I do? Now, do I say, well, I'm just not not going to do what I agreed I'm going to do. I'm not going to support the government. I'm, I'm just going to step aside. Well, you can do that. Renounce your citizenship. You can do that. But until you do that, you're responsible, like everybody else, to go along with the majority. Maybe I don't agree with everything the majority does. And that's exactly, that's sometimes that's very right. We don't agree with what the majority wants to do. And so I have a way to register that disagreement. And it's at the polls. I vote. And sometimes it's not going to go my way. As a matter of fact, most of the time, it doesn't go my way. Because it is a human government. And it's going to, it's going to go in the way that, w- that we don't believe it should go. So what is my responsibility? The first responsibility I have is to pray that things will go well. And ask God to intervene. Please, Lord, 
Help us enact good laws. Let's pray. All men should lift up holy hands and pray everywhere. First Timothy 2 at verse 8. We need to pray. We need, we need to pray without wrath and doubting. And then I need to make sure that I honor my responsibilities and my word. So I have to honor what I've said. What I'm saying is that I'm asking God for some things. And basically I want, when I'm asking God, I'm asking Him that, will God, will you please control this government? Will you please control this government? Will you step in and make them do what you want them to do? That's what I'm asking. Is that tenable? Is that possible? That God can, through human government, control people and make them do what He wants them to do? Well, God works in ways that I don't understand. So I can pray to God. And I can say, Lord, I don't like the idea that there is such a thing as abortion on demand. I don't like that at all. I don't support that at all. Matter of fact, it makes me sick at my stomach. It, it really gets to me. I don't, like, I don't like people being abused. I don't like that at all. I don't like a lot of things that go on in the government. I don't like them. But my responsibility as a citizen in this democracy is I can express that but I can only express that at the polls. That's the only way I can express it. I cannot rise up and overthrow the government by violence because I've already agreed I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the majority rule. I can, as an individual, I can say, well, okay, I'm going to get involved in politics and I'm going to try to bring the name of Jesus into the issue, into the mix. I'm going to try to tell people that we need to get a higher moral standard, that we, we need to raise the ethics of this government, we need to make sure that we have good, a good system of justice, and so I can, as an individual, get involved in that. But the Bible tells me, and Paul says, that we should honor, give honor to whom honor is due. We have to honor the government. So I, I can do it, but I have to do it in an honorable fashion, in an honorable way, and what I've already agreed to do. And, of course, I, I, as an individual, as a believer, I cannot do anything contrary to the Word of God. That's what Peter said. He, he said it for all of us. He said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he said, we ought to obey God rather than man. So, when it comes down to an issue of if the government tells me to do something that's sinful, and God says, don't do that. I have to obey God rather than man. I have to obey Him. So, I have a, I have a clear issue here. I want, basically, I want our government to be a good government. And I want the United States of America to be the good guys with a white hat. That's what I want. I want to see justice. I want to see mercy. I want to see fairness. I want to see all the good things that the New Testament teaches, that the Bible teaches, and that human dignity demands. I want to see all that. How do I affect that? How can I do that? Well, I'll tell you what. There was only one man that I know of, one ruler in history since the time of Jesus until now, that actually said, I'm going to do what God wants us to do in the government and I'm going to make sure everybody does it. You know what his name was? Constantine. A Roman emperor in the 3rd and 4th century. He became what he said, what he thought, was a Christian. He became a Christian. He said, okay, from now on, you will do what I believe the Lord wants you to do You'll do it or you'll pay the price. So he forced everybody under his administration to do exactly what he said they had to do or they paid the penalty. Is that what we're asking our government to do? 
to enforce the law of Jesus Christ. Constantine tried it. You know, he wasn't baptized until the month that he died. But during his administration, he said, everybody's baptized will get a new suit of clothes. They got a new white robe. And as a matter of fact, he said, if you, if you oppose me, if you're a pagan and you oppose me, you're going to suffer some consequences, some very serious consequences. He enforced Christianity. Is that what we want? Is the government of the United States supposed to stand up and enforce the will of Jesus Christ on people, whether they want it or not? Now, I want my children to obey Jesus Christ and be saved. And that's what I pray for all the time. But I cannot force them. I cannot force them. And I want my children's children to do the same thing. I cannot force them. I cannot impose it on them. Lord, I pray, help these people I love to become Christians. Now then, and I'll tell you how I want you to do it. <laughs> I can't do that. The only thing I know to do is to present Jesus Christ to them or have them come in contact with someone who will present Jesus Christ to them in a favorable light so that they will have an opportunity to obey Jesus Christ and to change their lives. I cannot change this government. You can't either. It is a democracy. And the majority, if the majority is wrong, the majority is wrong and, and they're going down the wrong way. And it looks like there's a lot of wrong things going on in government. Always has been. Always has been. Constantine had things going on that were wrong. How do you change that? You change it because you introduce to them a man named Jesus from Galilee. He's the only one that can change the hearts of an individuals or individuals. The only one. Now, so I'm going to say, Lord, how long is it going to take you to make sure that our government gets things right? Well, I'm, I'm hoping it'll happen. I'd, I'd like to see everything go well in the United States government, in our democracy. I'd like to see everything go well. I'd like to see them raise their morals. I'd like to see their ethics come up. I'd like to see justice come up. I'd like to see all the good things happen. Mercy. I'd like to see all these good things happen. Even love. I'd like to see all that come up. I may never see that. I may never see that. But it may happen. It may happen. God does things that I don't know anything about. He does it in ways I have no idea it's going to happen. How did it happen with Israel? How did they get out of Egypt? They didn't get out the way we would think they should get out. God had it worked out. Maybe things will change. I don't know. I don't know. I, I pray for the best. What I know I can do is I can stand up for the Lord. And I can say, okay... If I'm called upon, or if I have an opportunity, I will put my oar in the water. I'll paddle with Jesus. And I'll say, okay, I want you to know what Jesus would do. Here's, here's what I think I'd do. I'll cast my ballot for people that I think will do the right things. I'll do what I can do, but I'm going to leave the, less, the rest of it to God. Maybe He will change things. Maybe He will. Maybe He'll squash this epidemic. Maybe He will. But I want to tell you this, whether He does or not, I have a responsibility to stand up for Jesus Christ and say, I am going to believe in you, Jesus, and in you, God, and whatever happens, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, time? How's He going to do it? How is God going to do it? When I think about God changing the world and changing this country, if He's going to change it, 
I, I, I want to I see it happen. And I want to be part of it if I can be. I want to be a part of it. And the way I can be part of it is, I can bring Jesus Christ and His name into the arena. That's how I can be part of it. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, I can tell people about Jesus. In Genesis chapter 3, God said He was going to save humanity. When He said He was going to send someone to Adam and Eve, He told Adam and Eve, He said, This seed, your seed, will bruise the head of Satan. Satan will bruise his heel. How long did it take that for, to play out? How long did it take? When did Jesus come? Did, would you have ever figured that in order for you to go to heaven, in order for you to have all of your sins forgiven, that you would have to kill the Son of God? Did you ever figure you'd have to do that? That in order for you to go to heaven, have eternal life, have your sins forgiven, that you would have to be part and part parcel of taking the life of the Son of God. Who would have ever figured that? And yet Jesus came. How long did it take Him to get here? God has His time schedule. He has His own schedule. I don't know what it is. But I do know when Jesus came, it was time. The fullness of times came. Why didn't He come before? I don't know. But I do know it wasn't my business. He said He was going to do it. He told Isaiah it's going to happen. He told David it's going to happen. He told Abraham it's going to happen. He told Adam and Eve it's going to happen. How long did it take? So I'm looking at our government. I'm going to bring you back to this time and again. I'm looking at our government. I'm saying, how long is it going to be before we get everything right? I don't know. I'm going to leave that in the hands of God. It may take Him a while. You know, democracy didn't just spring up. It took a while. It took a while. And it, it was happening in other places before it ever happened here. It happened in France. And it happened in, in some places in Britain. It happened some places in, in uh, the under, the countries under, uh, in Australia and so forth. It, it, was, it was coming around. So, but, the, but the idea is, the, the kingdoms of this world do not impose the law of God. It is the church of the living God that Jesus is the head of. And it is the Son of God that rules on His throne. And He rules in each and every heart of a believer. So whatever is going to happen in this government, God is going to take care of it. And so my responsibility is, I take Jesus into my community and I say, I know how I can improve my community. I can be part of it because I can tell them about Jesus. What I'm going to do to improve my community is I'm going to take you to the cross. I'm going to introduce you to someone that can write on your heart the story of salvation that's Jesus. That's what I can do. And I'm going to leave it up to God to take care of the government. You know, we're, we're asking, do you know when we're, we're asking something to happen? We're asking not only for something to happen in our community, something to happen in our state, something to happen. That we're asking for a universal change. We're asking for a universal change. We're saying, God... Change this world for the better. That's what we're asking Him to do. Now if I'm asking Him to do that, I'm not about to jump in and say, I, I think I can roll up my sleeves and I can get in here and help you get it done. What I can do is bring the message of salvation to everyone that I know and bring them back to the cross of Calvary and say, okay, you want to get better? If you want to go to heaven... If you want to be happy in this life, if you want to be blessed, come to the cross with me. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And I'm not going to tempt God. 
I'm not going to say, Lord, when are you going to make everything better? I'm not going to say, Lord, how are you going to do it? I'm just going to say, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and if it can be done, He will do it. And my part will be to present Him to you. God help you do that. And rest in yourself that God is in charge of governments. I don't know what He's going to do, how He's going to do it. I don't know. I do know the only way change comes about is through Jesus Christ. And let's preach Him.